by default, we are using our children as guinea pigs in this massive experiment to find out whether these chemicals are toxic. Welcome to the very first episode of On the Mission from Norwex Learning Network. I'm Amy Kadora. I created this show to help raise awareness about issues that can impact our quality of life, including harmful chemicals, plastic pollution, and sustainability. We'll also explore the simple changes that you can make to improve you, your families, and the planet's health. Our guest today is Dr. Bruce Lanfear, MD, who is a professor of health sciences at Simon Fraser University in gorgeous Vancouver, British Columbia, one of my favorite places to visit. His goal with his work is to help prevent disease that may be caused by lead and other toxic chemicals. And he's vexed by our failure to control the pandemic of chronic disease from widespread exposure to pollutants, toxic chemicals, and excess consumption. He produces videos like Little Things Matter to show how our health is inextricably linked with the environment and to help elevate efforts to prevent disease. All right, so excited today to have um, a very special guest on our podcast series. Many of you uh, remember him from one of our conferences where we introduced the Little Things Matter video and concept. And so many of you wrote in and said uh, how excited you were to learn about this concept. And so um, we're so fortunate to have Dr. Lanfear, Dr. Bruce Lanfear, on the podcast series today. And we thought we would talk a little bit about uh, almost kind of an introduction to harmful chemicals and this concept that, you know, how do they impact our health? And uh, Dr. Lanfear, I know that you, when we were talking earlier, you had these three kind of key ideas that may help people get a better understanding, a better grasp about how these harmful chemicals impact their health. And one of the things that I personally know, and certainly with talking with my groups, is that more and more people are so concerned about health, which is wonderful. We've got this, um, almost this wake-up call that's coming through, and and with people maybe working from home a little bit more, not having the commute into work, they have a little bit more time to put into their health um, and to start asking more questions, certainly about leading a healthy lifestyle. And as I know you've discussed uh, quite a bit, the idea that harmful chemicals can absolutely impact what might otherwise be a healthy lifestyle. So would love to hear a little bit more from you on you know, um, how... How do the uh, does regular exposure to these toxic chemicals inside and outside of our homes, how does that contribute to us being unhealthy, leading to disease, leading to obviously ultimately death as well? Yeah. Well, so one example would be, you know, we think about chronic diseases today um, and there's different theories about how those diseases arise. Uh, one of those theories is through oxidation or like rusting. If we were iron, it's about rusting. Uh, another one is chronic inflammation. Uh, another is shortening of the telomeres, and that's associated with premature death of the cell. 
Uh, and those are all probably valid to some extent. But for me, the real question is, what triggers those? Mm. Right. Most of the most of the money today is going to how do we develop drugs to stop it? What I'd like to know is what starts it. And then let's do something about that. And so one of the things we know, for example, with air pollution, and most of these chemicals actually, is that they accelerate the aging of cells. They shorten the telomeres. They increase inflammation. And so they fit beautifully into these theories that are out there. And if we really were concerned about prevention, they would give us uh, the insight to begin to prevent chronic disease. Now, that's going to take a tremendous overhaul of the way we think, the way we invest our health dollars and our research dollars, because most of our research dollars and most of our healthcare dollars goes towards treating people once they're sick. Right. Right. So we can look at some of these chemicals. And one of the most important things for us to recognize is that we are all chemical soups. We can find dozens, hundreds of chemicals inside every one of us. And I'm not talking about H2O or proteins that are part of our cells. I'm talking about environmental chemicals, synthetic chemicals in many cases, uh, or heavy metals, everything from lead and mercury and PCBs and now PFAS chemicals and phthalates and BPAs. And we know many of these are biologically active. The phthalates lower testosterone, and we're all exposed to phthalates. And they've been linked to diminished testosterone and even changes in little boys' um, reproductive organs right. if they're exposed prenatally. Now, I thought those studies would just wake people up. Man, not so much. I mean, we have started to get rid of some of the phthalates. Unfortunately, they were replaced by other phthalates. Right, this idea of regrettable substitution, which really doesn't get at how tragic and troubling uh, what the chemical industry is doing to us is. Uh, this idea that you can simply replace a toxic chemical with another one that's like it. Right, right. No, the, you, you raise a really good point and something that we've often talked about, even with our um, with our with our customers and our consultants, is that so often we are replacing chemicals with chemicals that ultimately are found to be more harmful, more harmful to the body. So you're, you're right on. And you said regrettable substitution. Right. That's a term. But again, again, it doesn't get at how troubling this is. And, mm -hmm. and it happens in different ways. So, for example, if you look at the, the chemicals that we use as pesticides, right. Well, back in the early 1900s, they used a lead arsenate as a pesticide. And then whoops, that was toxic. We shouldn't do that anymore. And then it was shifted to DDT. Whoops, that's toxic. And so it was replaced with organophosphate pesticides. And now there's calls to ban organophosphate pesticides. And we're relying more heavily on neonicotinoids and pyrethroids. And there's already evidence that those are toxic. And so that's one type of regrettable substitution. The other one is more where you take something, uh, a, a chemical that is similar, like one phthalate and replace it with another phthalate. Uh, but in both cases, it doesn't make any sense. And yet our regulatory system is sufficiently flawed 
that the chemical industry can continue to do this because we, we don't regulate chemicals until they're shown to be toxic. And this is one of the things I don't think enough people appreciate. Mm -hmm. Most of the chemicals out there were grandfathered in right. during the first chemical regulatory act in 1976. So in order to get them off the market, you have to prove time and again in human studies, time and again in laboratory studies that they're toxic before any action is taken. And what that means is by default, we are using our children as guinea pigs in this massive experiment to find out whether these chemicals are toxic. Now that's good for my career, right? I mean, I could, I could continue. If we, if we keep doing it like this, I could work for two more lifetimes easily, but I'd actually like to retire. And if, if we could begin to regulate these chemicals, we could start to see striking decreases in chronic diseases and disabilities that impact children and the rest of us. So when you talk about regulatory, you know, taking regulatory action, because I, I absolutely agree with you, you know, we, we encourage people to uh, communicate with their pocketbook, right? And, and really look for ways that you can be buying products that support um, or don't support the use of harmful chemicals for sure. When you're talking about regulations and the impact that they could potentially have on regulations, do you have any insight about what they could be doing, what we could be doing from a regulatory standpoint? Absolutely. And, and I think just to begin with, um, one of the reasons I'm, I'm just so excited that you've shown the videos uh, is that we're now celebrating the 100th anniversary of women demanding the right to vote, right? And it wasn't a coincidence that just a year or two later, one of the largest, the largest at the time, public health bill, the Town Shepherd Act was implemented because women demanded it. And mm -hmm. it called for home nurse visitation, it called for more clinic visits uh, for children, um, it, it looks like mostly it was about home nurse visitation that really had the biggest impact. But the point here is that, you know, when I've gone to talk to Congress or when I've served on science advisory boards, it was always with the hope that that would lead to, to rational, stronger regulations. What I've come to recognize is that that by itself is not enough. And it's not until mothers start demanding change that we're going to see any action and that's what happened in flint michigan that's what happened with the uh, town shepherd act that's what happened with mothers against drunk driving um, we can't rely on our politicians to do that without the communities without mothers standing up and demanding it now i do have some additional hope because we're starting to see more women in congress for example uh, but they need our help, too, because they're going to be in a position where they need campaign funding. And too often that campaign funding comes from these big corporations that have their own interests. Uh, they're not necessarily, most of them aren't, primarily interested in our children's health. So it sounds like even just using our voices more, um, you know, you're, from your perspective, definitely teaching, giving more education, 
continuing, even, even though you've been doing this for decades now, continuing to wave that flag of, hey, we've got a problem and we need to start at the source, right? Because, and I agree with you, moms are, um, we know that you tend to become very aware and conscious of these issues of harmful chemicals, probably starting around the time you get pregnant, right? Yes. So you, there's something, there's some sort of switch you've got now, you know, it gets turned on and now you are really aware of what are you eating? What are you drinking? What are you putting on your body? And even your, your doctor may be saying, Hey, try not to color your hair quite as much. You know, we don't necessarily have, you know, robust evidence, but as a precaution, let's not dye our hair as much. And you definitely don't want to be eating these types of foods, um, uh, for the potential contamination. So I, I think you're absolutely right that we have um, women and men, certainly, that can be the voices here and can try to take this message up. And that's why so many of our consultants are so interested in this topic. They're passionate about this topic because they've had family or friends who have actually been negatively impacted by these chemicals. And they've seen and experienced such a difference when the simple act of of removing them has had on the human body because as you I mean the human body is so able to repair itself in and and fairly quickly I was just rereading that article that study where they had taken um uh, urine samples from families and tested them for a whole host of pesticides and then pulled them uh, and put them on a those same families on an all organic diet and a week later showed dramatic drops in the levels of pesticide in the family's bodies. I mean that alone to me starts to show people that really those little little things do matter and that you can take those little steps uh, in your own life and in your own home to try to reduce your exposure. It cannot be good for your body to be the toxic soup of different chemicals constantly day in and day out throughout your entire life, decades, right? That's absolutely right. And, and those types of studies are hopeful because mm. they offer some um, way for families to control their own exposures. Right. And, and yet at the same time, as much as that is important, one of the things we also recognize is that none of us can protect ourselves from all of the chemicals out there. I remember several years ago now, I was being interviewed for a book by Joel Bakken. His, the name of his book was Childhood Under Siege, How Big Business Targets Our Children for Profit. And he was asking me about some of the different chemicals I'd studied and what the health impacts were. And so I was going through this litany of chemicals and, and disorders. And after about five or 10 minutes, he says, wait a minute, stop, stop. He says, you do this for a living, right? I said, yes. He says, you have children? I said, yes. Can you protect your children from these chemicals? No way. I mean, I can maybe five, or, I can keep on top of five or 10 things, but there's hundreds of these chemicals out there. And some of them, like what's in the air, I can't control that. I can put a HEPA air cleaner, try to reduce them in my home, but I can't control those exposures. I can't control the lead or the pesticides that get into my food. Now I can choose organic, but that's still not going to protect me because the certification isn't as strong as it needs to be. It's better than it was, but it's not as strong as it needs to be. So we really have to come at this from two different directions. In the short term, absolutely, there are some things we can do to reduce our exposures. 
but in the long term, we know that that's not going to be sufficient by itself. And that's where the regula the regulations need to come in. Absolutely. Now, what you just were mentioning, chemicals, what, what are the ones that for you right now are most concerning, particularly as it relates to children? Because I, I know that a lot of your research and your, your study, your interest area is in how these toxic chemicals can impact children and how very little of them is needed to have that negative impact. What would you say are the ones that are most concerning uh, and and can we can we do anything about those right now? What would be the steps you would say to us to say, hey, if you do nothing else, try to do this? So so I, it, there's too many chemicals to come up with a short list. I mean, I could I could tell you which ones are most prominent in the news right now, mm -hmm. but even the ones that were prominent 20 or 30 years ago, we haven't resolved. I mean, in our in our birth cohort study, our pregnancy and birth cohort study in Cincinnati that we started in. 2003, 80% of uh, pregnant women in the study had measurable levels of DDT. All right, so that was 30 to 40 years after it was banned. Right. Many of the chemicals are persistent chemicals. Uh, right now, PFAS chemicals, uh, Teflon-like chemicals are in the news, and those are also persistent, and those will be with us for generations. Uh, but other things like lead, even if it's not you know, typically thought of as a persistent, it is, and it's stored in our bones and transferred from the pregnant woman to the fetus. So in some ways, the number of chemicals and the problems out there, pesticides are another big one. Air pollution is another huge one, right? And it's, and it brings up this idea of air pollution brings up a whole nother concept, which is chemical mixtures. And what we know is that most of the studies we've done have looked at one chemical at a time, but the cumulative impact can oftentimes be much worse than having one chemical. And so not to focus maybe on the chemicals in terms of what we can do, but maybe on some steps we can take to try to reduce our exposure to multiple chemicals at once. Right. And so in the videos uh, that we put together, we always try to end up with what can you do? Uh, and typically things like choose organic if you, if you can afford it. Uh, try to reduce the amount of plastics either as packaging of your food or in, in, in the kitchen. Certainly don't microwave plastics. Um, try to avoid canned foods of all sorts. Uh, so that's maybe a good place just to stop and say, you know, a lot of these ideas that I've come up with and my colleagues have come up with, but even in my own home, I've relied heavily on, on my partner, Nancy, to make sure that, that they get actualized. And now we... Uh, we rarely eat canned foods. We bought an instant pot so we can make the harder things like beans quickly. Right. Uh, we get our tomato sauce in glass jars. Uh, we can some of our own foods. We make most of our food at home from scratch. Uh, now, I remember one a student when I did a talk one time said, well, that's, that's just so inconvenient cooking at home. It's so much easier to go to you know, a fast food restaurant. And I said, well, that's one story. Here's another one. Nancy gets home from work. We have a gin and tonic. We go to the kitchen and we start cooking together. We talk about the day <laughs> and we don't have to travel anywhere. Right, right. Uh, sometimes it's less expensive, but that's not the point for us. Right. Um, so that's one thing we can do. The kind of foods we eat, how we prepare it. Um, the next thing is what we surround ourselves by. Now, I've, I've tried, I've got three children and they're all women. 
And I've tried to encourage them to, you know, say you're beautiful as you are. You don't need the cosmetics. Um, you don't need the makeup. And I think I've only been partially successful, but I think a little bit, um, at least now. Um, but we are convinced that we need these. We've been convinced that we right. need these to, to be pretty, to be beautiful, right. uh, to be handsome uh, right. increasingly. Right. Um, and, you know, there are some there are a few things I think probably we all need, uh, but we don't need the you know, all of these different cosmetics mm -hmm. and pesticides, um, certainly. So pesticides, tobacco smoke, those things that uh, we use in and around our homes or can use sometimes in and around our homes can be uh, really important toxic exposures. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, like um, five provinces in Canada and in Vancouver, we banned the use of cosmetic pesticides. You can't use pesticides in and around your house to make it pretty. Uh, there's a group that we've been working with non-toxic neighborhoods out of Irvine, uh, and they've been working with communities across the world uh, to help shift away from heavily uh, pesticide-laden management of playing fields, um, parks, uh, roadsides towards um, uh, either organic or integrated pest management. We don't need those pesticides. And in fact, one of the biggest misconceptions, of course, promoted by big ag, is that we need pesticides to feed the world. And you know what? It's not true. Right. But that was that belief um, was supported, uh, fostered by not only big ag, but governments around mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. There's 300,000 people that die every year from acute pesticide poisoning, not chronic low-level exposures. That's another whole story, but just from acute poisonings, right? So we've got ourselves into this mess because we're operating from a broken narrative. And it's the same one Rachel Carson talked about, right? Right, right. This idea that uh, the chemical industry pushed it, this idea that we can live better with chemistry, with these chemicals. Uh, we still operate out of that. 50 years after Rachel Carson published her book, uh, we haven't got past it. And so this idea that by going back to some of the ways, now going back is not foregoing all conveniences, but it's, right. it's about being smart. It's about being thoughtful about what we bring into our kitchens, what we bring into our world uh, and the technologies that we adopt rather than the technologies that industry sort of foists on us, convinces us we need, even though too often we find out they're harmful. I, I love what you said, because you, you almost uh, were reading my mind. It, it is changing that narrative, right? And it's changing that narrative from what maybe we are being told, what we are for sure being told is the right way to live and empowering ourselves to say, wait a minute, that, that's not the narrative that I want, whether it's I want to make I want to have a gin and tonic or a very nice glass of wine and sit down and make a beautiful meal and enjoy it versus going out for convenience. And I love what you said about being, you know, well, in part, what I think we try to do is bringing that awareness so that you are more conscious. That was the word that you used. And I love that conscious of what's coming into your home. And it also made me think of our Norwegian heritage. And I know, uh, you know, with your one of your conferences being in Norway, you're probably very familiar with this entire Norwegian Scandinavian lifestyle, 
which says a lot of what you just said, the simplicity of life and saying we don't need necessarily all these cosmetics. It's more of a, uh, you know, an overused word, but this natural approach, this simplistic approach to taking care of your skin, of your body, of the, it's hygge, right? It's that enjoy your family and friends and taking moments and just living a very different lifestyle. Um, something that we're trying to emulate here. I know many of us are trying to emulate here, sometimes more successful than others, but you're, you're right. Being more conscious is a huge step. And it's the one thing that we do hear um, from our teams when they're saying, I didn't know that microwaving plastic was bad. And of course, I'm sitting back going, okay, this is, we got to start with basics then because the microwaving of plastic, I'm, I'm really bad. I can, I swear I can smell microwave plastic, uh, uh, plastic being microwaved when we're at the office and people get scared when I come into the break room and I'm like, is that plastic? Is that plastic in the microwave? Get it out. Here's a bowl. You got to use a bowl. Um, or when they're buying Skittles and I'm like, can we talk about dyes for just a minute and the ingesting of the dyes? So they, they, they really would like to ban me from the break room. But I, I completely agree with you. It is this, let's bring more awareness because what you know and what I know, I can't assume everybody else knows. And, and in many ways I do. I'm like, well, of course everybody knows that plastics have uh, some very negative connotations and the personal care products you use on your body twice a day, right? You've got to make sure that those are clean. You got to make sure those are clean. All right, so this is great. We've talked a little bit about how we're exposed. Can can you talk a little bit about the difference in exposure maybe for children versus for adults? Like how um, we have shared uh, a lot of the research um, at our conferences about little, you know, very small doses can have really no measurable impact on an adult, but on children, it can be substantial. So love your insight on on that. Yeah. So there's really two different kind of levels of added vulnerability for children. One is increased exposures to toxic chemicals. And the other is that in some cases, they're more vulnerable to the types of toxicity because of the developmental stage. So for exposures, they have different exposures than adults. In the first case, the first environment they're in, the uterus, the uterine environment, uh, they can be exposed to certain chemicals that way. It's not like it's it used to be thought that the that the placenta acted as a barrier to chemicals, mm -hmm. but the congenital mercury poisoning out of Minamata proved that that wasn't the case. The, the mother was the one who ate the contaminated fish, uh, but yeah. it was the, the child, the fetus, that was devastated in some cases from those exposures. We knew that the mother might have had some subtle health impacts, but on the surface, appeared healthy and normal but right. in some cases the child uh, would develop what looked like cerebral palsy and then we knew it also had brain impact so that that really woke us up to the the idea that uh, the placenta is not a barrier and what the mother's exposed to and has been exposed to throughout her life in some cases will be transferred then once a child's born they're at increased exposure for a couple reasons one is pound for pound they eat more, drink more, and breathe more than older children and adults. And so if the air or the water or the food is contaminated, they're gonna get a higher body burden from the same exposures. They also tend to crawl on the floor. And so whatever's on the floor, and there's a lot on the floors, right. 
A lot of stuff settles out from what's in the air, from what we drag in on our feet, whether it's pesticides at the farm or whether it's from the, the tarmac outside on the driveway uh, or in the garage when we come in. And so they're, they're putting their hands in their mouths. Children explore the world as much with their, their hands as their eyes and ears. Um, and then, uh, and so what we've seen is whether you look at things like tobacco or lead or, or number of pesticides, is that the, the body burden of young children oftentimes is higher than an older child or an adult. Right. And so that's been pretty consistent. Then there's this idea that at different developmental stages, children might be more vulnerable. And particularly, if you think about uh, brain development, um, during early childhood, the brain is rapidly growing during uh, in utero development and even throughout early childhood. So think just for a moment how we treat cancer. And that seems like a strange analogy, but think about how we treat cancer. We administer poisons to those cancer patients with the hopes that those poisons are more rapidly picked up by the fast-growing cells, the cancer cells. Right. right. But in the case of toxic chemicals in our environment, those are going to be picked up by the rapid-growing normal brain cells. Uh. And the brain grows over a longer period of time than mm -hmm. other organs again, continuing throughout first many years of life and even beyond. And so the fact that it's growing, you can it's like throwing a wrench in early in the early stages. And so we can look at brain development, even using MRI uh, brain scans and show how lead and pesticides and air pollution changes the brain for kids who are more heavily exposed, even out to say at 15 or 20 years of age. What about um, flame retardants uh, in particular? You know, this is something I remember reading about how levels of flame retardants in children can be three times, in toddlers, can be three times the levels that they might find in their mothers. Is that the same sort of, uh, of issue that they're, you know, because I remember looking, and this would have been years ago since I have an almost 18-year-old, it was hard to find organic pajamas. And I was on a mission because I knew that pajamas, clothing, mattresses, flame retardants are absolutely ubiquitous, right, in our homes. I do not still understand why my TV needs to have a flame retardant. If there's a fire, that is not a significant concern. Um, but but the looking at that and, and thinking, in that toxic soup, we've got toddlers who are growing and, and having that massive growth that have far more of the flame retardants in yeah. their well, you, you bring up an interesting uh, example because there's many different types of chemical flame re retardants. And we have recently banned certain types like PBDEs. Right. And those are being replaced now with other types like OP type flame retardants. And of course, the next question is, well, are they safe? And so yet another example of regrettable substitution. Right. But, but even more troubling perhaps is why did we start using chemical flame retardants in the first place? It was because there were so many fires from cigarette smoking. And rather than regulate cigarette smoking or suggest that maybe we should stop smoking, the tobacco industries figured out how to 
market this new chemical mm. uh, to help retard uh, flames. But the worst part of it is they don't seem to work very well. And so they are unnecessary. Um, so now we're all walking around with extraordinarily high levels of PBDEs. Children, as you mentioned, have higher levels, largely because of those hand-to-mouth behaviors. A lot of the PBDEs will leach from uh, upholstered furniture uh, into the carpets, and that's where they're exposed. It's also, you can kind of imagine it like, you know, the old pig pen, where the kids are crawling or even walking and jumping across a floor, and they're closer to the floor. And so if those puffs of smoke will come up and they'll breathe them in. So they are more heavily exposed to PBDEs. It's, it's just crazy to me. It's just, it's almost the, it's the same idea that we went after the symptom, right? Versus trying to actually treat the, the, the disease itself. We went after a symptom um, or the cigarette companies went after the symptom and said, hey, we can solve it by making sure that if you drop that cigarette or that ash, the fire won't be as bad. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have is that we have for the past 50 or more years been in a constant reactionary or crisis mode where we uh, see a new disease, we react to it. And, and, you know, to some extent, that's quite natural and it makes sense. You know, as chronic diseases like cancer and obesity and heart disease uh, arose, we wanted to find ways to treat people, to end the suffering, right? That's a perfectly natural response, certainly for families and individuals, right? My father's sick. I want to do something for him now. Right. Where, the, where the problem comes in is we don't have a system. Our society does not say, and we also need to have a plan so that in 20 years, we don't have so much coronary heart disease or lung cancer, or autism, or whatever the case may be. Our governments are largely reactionary and crisis-oriented, at least some of our governments. There are other governments around the world that are doing a much better job, uh, and we need to learn from them. Uh, But we don't seem to be willing to do that either uh, in the United States. Uh, But that's that's another really important message, Mm -hmm. that we need to have a better balance between short-term and long-term strategies for disease. I love that. I love that. Totally agree with you. Totally. And and the long-term also maybe is something that we can have a little bit more input into as well. You know what? And this is why people look for alternatives, right? We're always searching for how can I empower myself to make better choices so that long-term, I don't get those diseases. I don't have those challenges. Totally agree with right. that. And, and the other thing you mentioned, the other, the other, I think, really important concept is looking upstream. Mm-hmm. And, and this really is just another facet of what I mentioned. We react to what's in closest proximity to us. Uh, but, but if we really wanted to think about protecting ourselves, let's say from toxic chemicals, Again, quite naturally, each of us is going to say, what can I do in my household? And that makes perfect sense. But we also need to say, but wait a minute, why is it that so many people are smoking? Why is it that so many people are exposed to air pollution? Why is it that so many people are exposed to lead? So if we looked upstream at the corporations that are uh, forcing us to be exposed, convincing us that these exposures are benign and even 
beneficial in some cases, like with pesticides, that's where we can really begin to have, in the longer term, a big impact. Right, right. Totally agree with that. There was a uh, a mother that said, uh, when she was talking about toxic chemicals, mothers shouldn't have to be chemists, mm. right? And what she really meant is mothers shouldn't have to be chemists or toxicologists or public health experts in order to protect their children. And that's really what we've demanded of parents is that they've got to figure out maybe not how to protect their kids so much from lions, tigers, and bears, right. but lead and PFAS and pesticides. That should never be the case, but you're absolutely right. We see it day in and day out with with people who want more information on these topics and they're uh, they're highly motivated <laughs> to find out more. And, and you're right, they do feel like they have to become experts in this area. And this is a very complex area. You know, you, you are clearly, uh, you know, an expert in this area. Um, I'm a nerd, you know, and, and uh, a student and, and loving to, to learn more about it. But it is, it is complicated to understand even the studies that are put out, right? And interpret that and be able to intelligently then translate that to say that this is what this means. And these are, these are things that we all need to do to try to, try to improve our outcomes long-term. It's it's right. it's yeah. very challenging. Even as experts, we can't protect ourselves from all of it. We can't keep on top of all of it. No, and and people honestly, you know, when we talk about this, we get uh, from people that are that are very educated. We'll get additional research that they'll spin at us, and and I'm I always marvel at it because it's how do you how do you filter through all of this and get to the the true source of information that you can rely on day in and day out. And, and we have very few of those types of resources where you can say, okay, Dr. Lanfear said this, so this is what we're gonna do because we, we trust everything that he says. We don't have very many of those resources. We really right. don't. And, and, it's, and it's interesting that it, this creates tremendous problems. I mean, people now, I think the statistic I heard last week was that 30% of people wouldn't take the, uh, the coronavirus vaccine if it was available. Now, presumably that means it's both effective and it's safe. Right. And yet 30% of people said, maybe not. And the question is, who do we trust? Mm -hmm. And too often, um, it's really hard to know. And it's so convenient for people uh, to, you know, become consultants for industry, for example. And right. you can make a lot of money working for industry. And so, can you trust a person just because they're a professor at a university? Not necessarily, right? You have to figure out, have they, do they have financial conflicts or not? Um, and I would say the vast majority of my colleagues, certainly in this field, children's environmental health don't, um, and yet too many people do. Mm. Who do you trust? That's a huge question. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Yep. Uh, last, the last time I presented at the, to the chemical management plan in at Health Canada, this is a few years ago, somebody asked a question and I responded and I had never said this before, but it's true. I don't trust that our governments are protecting us from toxic chemicals. That's one of the most important functions of either a federal or state or provincial government is to protect its people from hazards. 
Now, of course, there's other types of hazards, but this is a big one. And I don't trust that our governments are protecting us adequately from these toxic chemicals. And as soon as I said that, I realized how sad that is. Mm -hmm. They are failing to protect us from toxic chemicals. Right. Either inadvertently or more overtly. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's it, And it is hard. I mean, yeah. the, the EPA, for example, they've lost funding for the last They're two overwhelmed. decades. Overwhelmed. And, and it's almost like we've got to hold them accountable right. uh, on, on one hand right. and demand more resources and a stronger mandate on the other. Right. Um, and of course, we got to demand a lot more from the EPA today. But it's 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 been flawed and broken for over 20 or 30 years now. Anyway, right. it's not just under Trump. Right. Right. Totally agree. Totally agree. Is there an example of a country or countries that you look at who who you think interesting? They're they're headed in the right direction. I, I like how they're managing these these environmental chemicals like how they're, you know, how they're, they're trying to reduce the impact. Just any, any that come to mind that in your research, you're like, you know what, I consistently go back to this country and see what they're saying um, to give us a, a heads up, quite honestly, because that's certainly what we do. We're like, well, what's, it's more what's going on in Europe uh, versus what's going on here to just get a better feel for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and we do typically look to the European Union for uh, being much more rigorous about um, reducing toxic chemicals. And, and I love something they said, I think this is back in 2007, that 30% uh, of all chemicals used worldwide are produced in the European Union. And we want to you know, stay competitive. But we also recognize that these chemicals have the potential to be toxic. And so they developed a regulatory system that is uh, much stronger than what we have here. Now, that's not to say that it's perfect by any means. And many of my colleagues from uh, the European Union will tell you about all the flaws. Uh, it had to be, it, it was watered down in the process of implementation. And I, and I think it's also realistic to say that it's going to take us a generation anyway to fix this mess that we've that we've made. But I, I, I think looking there gives us some hope, uh, some direction about where to go. Um, I think, you know, on one level, there's nothing inherently wrong about corporations. There's a lot of good corporations out there. One might argue that the failure is in government not regulating them. Uh, the problem, of course, is that there's so much lobbying power in the United States that our agencies can't regulate them, right? So it's, it becomes a bit circular. Uh, but I look to the European Union and the concept of organic in the European Union is somewhat different than it is in North America. Here, it's a much more static uh, process. So there is a certification for organic that was established a couple decades ago and it hasn't changed. When I talk to my colleagues in the European Union, they talk about how some companies uh, will constantly try to improve what it means to be organic. Hmm. Oh, there's plastics in there. We've got to figure out how to reduce those. Right? It's a very different system. And when you talk about innovation, helping companies innovate, well, regulations aren't only bad. 
right? They don't only impede progress, they can actually serve to enhance innovation if you uh, put out and give you, you want to give them time, right? You, you don't want to say by tomorrow you have to do this, but you want to give them an impetus to make products that are healthier. You know, when you're talking about companies um, almost self-regulating in some, some ways, I've been so encouraged lately by looking, even over the last three years, looking and finding companies that are taking it on themselves to define, you know, what does it mean to be socially responsible? What does clean personal care products, clean food actually mean to us? So we're going to define it at a very different level than maybe how, how our government is defining it. But I'm so encouraged to see more and more companies doing that because to your point, that's going to be the innovation and they're, they're, they're bypassing, you know, for example, in the U S the nightmare that was trying to get the USDA organic certification through and approved. I mean, part of the reason probably no one wants to touch that again was it was very, it was a very challenging process that they, that they went through. So they're like, leave well enough alone, it's, it's good enough. So the more that we can encourage companies with our pocketbooks again to say, hey, I love what that company stands for. I love what they're doing. And I love that they're setting the bar up here versus down, you know, where, where we might have from a regulatory standpoint. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And making it easier for companies to be innovative in, in a way that Absolutely. promotes health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's what we're seeing, right? We're not seeing it necessarily come from the certainly governmental organizations. It's not coming from there. It is coming from these smaller companies. Okay. So, um, one of the, I know the key points the, that you made was that most death and disease arises in people who are at this low to moderate risk. And that, you know, I think this ties back into your exposure 24 seven to this cocktail mix of chemicals, but just talking about how is the research or is the research being done on only high risk groups versus it, you know, the, the impact is actually much more significant on these low to moderate. And, and, and I would say, for example, put myself in this low risk, low to moderate risk level, but do I actually have more exposure and more potential for disease long-term than these high risk groups? Yeah. So this is, this is kind of a, uh, uh, complex topic to try to get it. But let me, let me give an example, and then I'll come back and try to explain it in a different way. So um, in one sense, it's really a numbers game. So you can imagine, uh, I could give you the option, 10 people give you $10,000. That's a lot of money, right? right. Or 10,000 people giving you $100. Which one would you take? Right. On the surface, like $10,000 from 10, that's a lot of money. Versus $100, that's not so much. But because there's so many people giving you $100, it's going to be worth that much more. Right. All right. So now let's look at it from a disease standpoint. So in Canada, there was a study that was done. And uh, we know that people who are very obese are about three times more likely to develop diabetes. Right. Three times more likely. That's a big deal. But only about 12% of new cases arise from that group because there's only 4% of the Canadian population that's very obese. So if we just focused on the very obese, that 4% of people, even though they're at three times greater risk, we're not going to prevent 
diabetes. We're not going to prevent the majority of new cases of diabetes. Well, you say, well, we, maybe we could focus on the obese and the very obese. That's about 17% of Canadians. Still, you'd only prevent about 38% of new cases. So if you really want to prevent the bulk of new cases of diabetes, you want to focus on the entire population. You might have some targeted efforts towards the high risk, but you certainly don't want to neglect the low to moderate risk group. So they are still at risk. It's lower, but there's so many of them that the new cases from that low to moderate risk group will swamp, will overshadow those in the higher risk group. The other problem with focusing only on this high risk strategy, which is a clinical strategy, which is the basic strategy we use in North America, right? That's where we put 96% of our health dollars. Uh, that's where we put 96% of our research investments in the high risk populations in treatment and genetics and stem cells. The problem, the other problem with that is that by the time people develop a sickness, a disease, or symptoms, well, now it's about trying to minimize it as opposed to starting out by reducing the overall risk in the population. You can actually begin to prevent people from the developing the disease in the first place. And we know that's true. And yet we still get sort of stuck on this idea um, and where all the money goes. You know, we, we, we did it. We made a video a few years ago. We've seen autism rise, skyrocket in the past three or four decades. Um, we now have some evidence that air pollution and pesticides have an impact, but still all of the dollars are going towards genetics, very few towards the environment, right? Which is making this assumption that if we can identify the genetic risk factors, somehow we can give those people a drug. Now There's stop and think money. about that for a minute. Yeah. We're going to identify risk, genetic risk factors in pregnant women and give them a drug? Really? Or what are we going to do? Tell them to abort for a 5% increased risk? I don't think so. And yet 4% of our research dollars, only 4% goes towards trying to identify environmental triggers. Here's another example, childhood leukemia. Uh, some of my colleagues down in, uh, at UCSF have shown that about one in four cases of childhood leukemia can be attributed back to pesticides used in and around the home during pregnancy, highway traffic or air pollution, paints and solvent exposures during pregnancy, or smoking by the father. Right. Big deal, one in four. All right. So we know we have some clues about that we can prevent childhood leukemia. But virtually all of the dollars go towards treatment. And for research dollars, the National Cancer Institute only spends 1% of its budget for childhood cancer on prevention. Now, when I've asked, when I've done surveys of pediatricians, I've done surveys, uh, hand-raising surveys in audiences of pediatricians over the past two years, and I've asked them, I'm gonna take a vote and you can only choose one of two answers. How many of you would either one, increase funding to enhance the cure for childhood leukemia, or two, increase funding to find ways to prevent childhood leukemia? And then I asked those pediatricians to think of their children and grandchildren before they answer. Five pediatricians out of over a thousand 
raised their hand to increase funding to enhance the cure for childhood leukemia. Five, less than a quarter of 1%. But NIH spends 1% of their research dollars to find ways to prevent childhood cancer. It, it's, There's it's something awesome. broken about the system. Now, we don't, have, we don't have surveys like that for parents. I can't imagine that parents wouldn't say the same thing. Now, to be fair, if a parent has a child with childhood leukemia, of course they're going to answer differently, and they should. Right. What we should be asking those parents is, what would you wish we had done 20 years ago? And so the way we invest our research dollars is not democratic. And, and NIH, in fact, they say it's precision medicine, immunotherapy, and genomics. Those are their three big things. Now, those are great for the biomedical industry. They're terrible for prevention. And in fact, these three things are the same thing the American Biopharmaceutical Association said were the most important things. So nobody is really looking out for prevention of disease, maintaining health. It's really about disease care. And that, again, I think is where we need uh, parents, mothers to stand up and say some of the most of the victories in the, the most of the big victories in the past century were about population level strategies, community level strategies to prevent disease, whether it was polio vaccine, reduction in motor vehicle deaths, reductions in coronary heart disease from air pollution and lead. And most people just blame people for their lifestyle choices and ignore these environmental risk factors. That's where most of the victories have come from, but that's not where we're investing our health dollars today. You know, I, I get goosebumps as you're talking, um, Dr. Lanfair, because I, on the one hand, this information is, is um, discouraging and disheartening for sure. But on the flip side of that is exactly what you're saying, which is let us not forget that individuals and communities in the past have had a substantial impact and in the future will be also having a substantial impact. So the more that we can raise awareness, and I, I know I keep coming back to that and it seems so basic, but to, to make people aware, because so many people have no idea of what you're talking about, none. They have no, and I've made that assumption time and again, that of course everybody knows about this. They do not. So the more that we raise the alarm with parents and make them aware of the challenges and the little things that they can do in their homes, obviously the more impact we can have. And I hope that long-term we can make, you know, we need to get companies, we need to get governments around the world, to your point, focused on this idea of prevention too. That's right. And actually, in the end, I think my message is quite hopeful <laughs> because what we know without any new genetic tests, without any new expensive drugs, without stem cells, we can actually prevent a lot of death, disease, and disability, given what we know today, if we acted on it. Well, on that note, I am going to thank you so very much for taking your precious time today and sharing some of your insights with our um, 
with our community and uh, hopefully we can have you back again soon. I know we're going to get many requests for you um, after this podcast, but very much appreciate your insight. Um, I just love hearing you talk. I could just sit here all day and just listen to you go on and on about, uh, about these topics. So I really appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing with us. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our first episode of On the Mission, please be sure to share it with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe.